I like the part where I say something awkward and you sit there in silence and refuse to rescue me. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Chief Technical Officer Robot Joe Ferris. Hi, Joe. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Pretty good. Good. People don't usually call me robot. No? Just they stop at officer? Yeah, it's, I mean, or just Joe is fine. Okay. We'll call you Joe. So, let's talk about suspenders. Like, as opposed to a belt? No. But that's a great question. <laughs> as opposed to using rails out of the box. Ah. Suspenders is like omakase, but to the next level. More omakase. Yeah, even harder. So, um, do you want to talk about what suspenders is? Sure. Um, so when we make new Rails applications, we use a gem called suspenders. Mm. Uh, and what that does is it extends the normal Rails generator to add a bunch of other stuff, change some configuration options. Um, and basically the reason we have it is that we found that for every new project we started, there were like a bunch of things. Like I can't pick a random number. I'm going to say 14, mm-hmm. but it's more than that. Mm. Um, things that we had to do for every application. So it was repetitive and it was also error prone. Like every once in a while you'd get to like the first production deploy and be like, oh, I forgot to remove that index.html file. Yes. So, um, you know, it's a bunch of those common things that are like nice for your very first Rails application. So that when you launch it, it's like, you're riding the Rails, bro. But right. like, I know now. I know I'm riding the Rails. So <laughs> we all know you do it. Right. So we use suspenders to take care of that kind of stuff. Um, and we also append a bunch of things to the gem file. Yeah. Actually. So, I actually want to go through that. I was figuring we'd take a quick spin through it because people might hear about a gem or two that they didn't know was awesome and okay. is awesome. This is right. like a live audit. Yeah, I got it open right now. Okay. <laughs> we're going aud- to audit our code. Uh, one of them is psych. Spoiler I want a lawyer alert. here. Spoiler alert. Uh, first gem is airbreak. Okay. That's pretty easy, right? Error reporting. Yep. I bet most people have heard of that. We used to run that. We, we did run it for a while. Yeah. We, in- we invented that. Yes. That was a thing. <laughs> yeah. Not anymore. I mean, it's still a thing. It's just not our thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, actually, that's a good example of what I think is most useful on the gem file. It's not so much stuff that like we use a lot, and so we want to add it to the gem file. It's There are a bunch of different things that can do the same thing. Mm. We want the choice to be made by default. Right. So like every time you go and it's like, oh, right, exceptions. I'm going to get some of those. Uh, how do I handle those? We don't want people to be thinking about it. We want people to like look in the gem file and be like, oh. Airbreak, that's the one we're using. Yeah, and I think we've said the same thing about our style guide, right? It's mm-hmm. like it's not so important which of the particular styles you choose. It's more about avoiding the argument that comes up again and again. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, next is Bourbon. Uh-huh. That's our, uh, another in-house creation for uh, SAS mixins. Right, yeah. Um, this is not my world exactly. We had Phil, we had the creator on um, a handful of episodes ago. So if you need more Bourbon info... Go back to episode number something something. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, next is high voltage, static pages made simple. Mm-hmm. That's well, another thing we just use on every application, and there's always a decision that has to be made of like, how do we do that? I have an about page. Do I make a controller for that? Do I make one controller for static pages? And so the answer is in there already. Right. Uh, jQuery Rails. Yep, we use jQuery on every project now. I would say. Yeah, and we like it to be Railsy. We do uh pg postgres Mm -hmm. just decided on that one we deploy most things to heroku these days so that's actually a non-option even you just do that 
Right. Well, I mean, if you deploy to Heroku, you could use something else. It actually, well, you can, but it yells at you if it sees other gems, other database gems in your gem file when you try to deploy. Does it really? It really does. Like, oh, uh, we see MySQL in there, you naughty boy. And it won't <laughs> let you do it. Which I think is a little silly, but hey. Uh, psych? YAML parser? Yeah, so that is a, a weirder example. That's not so much a decision that had to be made or something we use frequently. It's... Um, so there were some machine configuration uh, permutations out there that raised these weird YAML errors for certain people on certain versions of Ruby. Hmm. And I don't remember what the exact particulars were. It was one of those days where I spent like four hours on Stack Overflow. But we found out that adding this to the gem file and locking it down to a specific version meant that we didn't get that error anymore, no matter who had what installed globally. Hooray. So, yes. The old, don't know quite why this works, but it works. If you look in Git Blame, I bet there's some better info in there. Okay, that we can that can be done. Uh, rack timeout. Yeah, so that's a common thing that comes up, and it's something that's one of those things that people forget to do. It's more like the index .html thing. Mm-hmm. Like there isn't really any choice. Like either you do it or you don't. But on Heroku, there's this you know this 30 second timeout. None. I mean, any platform you run on, there can be a timeout, right? Where like the process ran amok and you just return to the user a timeout and say like. Nope, don't know what happened there. It went somewhere, but never came back. Yeah. And you can have this issue where, like, for example, you press the submit button, and it's like, okay, I'm about to charge your credit card. And then you get this page that's like, we timed out. And so as a user, you're like, um, well, did it charge my card or not? Right. And the best part about that is that when you get that exception as a developer, you don't know either. Because you don't know if it timed out because the credit card processor timed out or if it timed out after it already sent it and was doing something else. And so part of the idea is um, we set a timeout that's lower so that things go you know, wrong earlier and so that we definitely return an error to the user before Heroku just like loses track of the process. Mm. Got it. Okay. I noticed an interesting thing in the readme there, which was um, it says uh, system timer slash timeout rely on threads. If your app or any of the libraries it depends on is not thread safe, you may run into issues using Rack timeout. That's such a fun little, hey, by the way, you may be totally screwed in an extremely subtle way. Yeah, and if I remember right, the heading for that readme is Here There Be Dragons or something like that. Probably. Yeah, that's good. Those are dragons. That's bad. Yeah, so we don't use multi-threaded models in general, like especially since we're on Heroku most of the time. We've heavily embraced processes, so we don't really mm. have much like thread background stuff going what's, on. What's the difference there? Threads versus processes. Right, well, so a thread is multiple different uh, parallel things and execution going on at once in a single process. So they all have the same memory. It's all the same loaded stuff of Ruby, all that kind of stuff. You have to synchronize within a process. Okay. Whereas processes, when you fork a process, it gets its own independent copy of everything. So like when it changes memory, it's changing its own memory, and it doesn't affect the parent process. And so the trade-off there is like it can be theoretically less efficient in terms of memory usage because everything needs its own copy. Yeah. But it also means you never have to worry about these weird, uh, like it's in a sandbox. So you don't have to pay as much attention to those here, there, be dragon issues because I mean, like people, it's very easy to forget to check things for thread safety. Yeah. And like, honestly, most Ruby libraries, at least somewhere are not. So if you're using threads, then there's a chance that you get this weird error that you can never track down because there's a really rare race condition in one of the libraries you're using. So, huh. Got it. So maybe better to just avoid that in Ruby in general? Certainly the way things are going right now on the web, we've gone more in the direction of a process model. Yeah. So if you go into a threading model, 
then here there be dragons, right? Because like as developers of open source libraries, we're not writing things with that in mind. We're not constantly testing things. Like if you're testing something out in a threaded model, you're like less than 1%, which means that when you uncover an error, there's a really good chance you're the first person and you get to blaze a trail and awesome. figure out what's going on. <laughs> it's another Stack Overflow day. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I try to sort of embrace the tested and tried stuff there and go in more of a process model. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you can read the um, Heroku 12 step, 12 step uh, site. They have some good info on like why they think the process model is more scalable to begin with. Hmm. It's interesting how their viewpoint coincides with the platform they built. <laughs> interesting. I'm sure that's completely <laughs> happenstance. Um, the next gem is a, a fairly controversial one. It's uh, something called Rails. <laughs> so, uh, Yep, we do use that on every application. Go figure. Uh, simple form. Simple form, yep. So the basic form stuff that comes with Rails is, well pretty basic and it handles a lot of stuff that's really obnoxious like tracking whether or not there's an error in this particular attribute and filling in values from you know whatever and even weird stuff like typecasting that you don't realize you have to worry about Hmm. internationalization but um it doesn't handle things like really repetitive markup and forms or the fact that almost every field needs a label yeah um and so simple form just adds a few little extensions there to make some of that stuff less painful and it has some weird like mixed bag stuff like uh, extra input types like selects for associations and things like that that Rails doesn't do quite as automatically. Mm. And this we we moved to this from Formtastic, which sort of inspired it heavily, apparently, but with some changes. Yeah, so I, I don't know the full history or story there, but I do know that um, Jose Valim is one of the primary authors on both. Mm. And so I think Simple Form was kind of a clean room implementation once the initial concept was proven. Mm. Uh, back when I looked at Formtastic, and I think there, a lot of work has happened on it sort of in parallel, but it was like one giant Ruby file with like 3,000 lines of amazing metaprogramming. Sweet. Uh, and so it's possible that he made the decision that instead of unraveling that, he would just start a new job. I think I just heard a podcast title come out of your mouth. <laughs> 3,000 lines of amazing metaprogramming. Who knows? Uh, strong parameters. Yeah. Um, so we switched to that a while back instead of using Adder Accessible. Mm-hmm. It's just basically an alternative way to do the same thing with a little bit more paranoia and shifting that concern more towards the controller, which always it always felt a little weird to me to have that in the model, and it led to some infuriating situations where it was like, you know, I pulled this out of an API I trust. I shouldn't need to, like, use the signer instead of you know passing it to the hash or doing yeah. these weird like right. safe true options that kind of stuff yeah that also a little bit goofy right okay uh thin yeah, fast little um, web server it's easy to forget to do that on heroku if you don't have thin in your gem file you can't use it and the default is web brick i didn't know that heroku requires you to have that in there i i believe so huh okay interesting they do like injection on your gem file still right I don't know. I don't, they've, they've been doing less and less injection as their platform has become more generic. So <laughs> they, they're doing meta meta programming now. There are bugs involved. Chad tells us from the sidebar. <laughs> um, I didn't know I could phone a friend on this show. Yeah, exactly. You can, but he doesn't actually have a microphone. So, <laughs> well, it's like a real phone. You only hear one side of the true. conversation. He's a very quiet friend. Uh, there's some asset stuff. Let's skip that for now. Uh, Foreman. Yeah, so Foreman is, um, it mimics the Heroku 
proc file process where you you know give it a list of stuff you want to run and it figures it out and it can pull configuration from the environment that kind of stuff and so it's convenient if you have like you know back in the day we used to just have one rails process just rails s and that was all we cared about our script uh server back in the day Mm -hmm. and so it was really easy to get started locally with everything you need but as rails applications have done more and more we have like you know background jobs and other little things we run and it's pretty convenient to stick those in a proc file and Mm -hmm. just say like you know boot up the thing that i want to run and foreman takes care of it the ubiquitous globally accessible redis instance (laughs) right so it's both a convenient way to run all the things you need to run uh locally with one command and like share it for developers but also to more closely mimic what's being used in production because it uses the same configuration file Mm -hmm. and so like it's less likely that you deploy something to production and realize that you know your stack was different like you know Mm -hmm. nobody likes those surprises (laughs) nobody does um so i'm looking at uh in the test environment we have guard and guard spork that's sort of in process we're trying out zeus these days right that's right um so we've still had some weird issues with zeus i'm still convinced that zeus is like what we'll be using yeah <laughs> eventually but every time i try to use it i spend some time debugging it get frustrated with it and pull it out so like i'm continually reevaluating it and i do think we're going to get there but right now uh the thing that is working and reliable is guard and spork yeah. And uh, we didn't really talk about this yet, but suspenders are supposed to represent what we will definitely want to use, what we've tried and we know works, and mm. not things like, oh, like strong parameters is new and cool. Let's add that and we'll try it on new projects. It's right. like, first we want to add it to a few projects gem files and deploy with that and make sure we like it, and then we put it in. Mm-hmm. And so we are trying out Zeus, and there are a number of projects now that don't have Garden Spork. We've taken them out. Um, but until we've proven that it's like, yes, we can do this, it'll work on every project, and it's our new default, we don't put it in suspenders. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, also have uh, RSpec Rails in there. Yep, we use uh, RSpec mm-hmm. to test our Rails applications. Yeah, Standard, standardized on that a little while ago. Right, yeah, I mean, that's another one of those decisions that, like, I mean, mini-spec is fine these days, test unit, there's a lot of stuff you can do with it, but really, like, you don't want to have that discussion on every project, so yep. we just made the decision. Yep, and Shamrack, also. Shamrack is still there. I guess we're in the process of, I think, switching to WebMock there. Okay. But same idea, they fake out HTTP requests. Right, well, so that was one of those, you know, we, we do that fairly often, and when the decision comes up, we don't want it to be different every time, like mm-hmm. Mocha versus whatever, and so we picked Shamrack, but I, I think we're changing our decision there. Okay, which is natural and healthy. <laughs> yeah, actually, going back to our spec, I think that's maybe an interesting one, because it's a decision we're making for developers, right? But it's actually a decision that Rails has already made for you by default, and we're changing it. Mm. So it's not just like, oh, Rails hasn't ruled on this yet, so we'll rule on it. This is one where we are uh, overruling Rails. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I don't know, it's different, but it's still sort of the same thing. Like, we've decided as a team that we are going to overrule Rails on every project, and we don't want to have that discussion all the time. So mm-hmm. now it's by default overruled. Yeah, I don't think many people would, would argue with that being reasonable too much. Like, yes, Rails gives you some defaults, but I think even DHH says, like, you know, these are the defaults that we think are good. You can change them, and we do that. Right, yeah. And I mean, I guess it's, um, it's a matter of being able to build on that infrastructure, right? Because we could have left it alone, and then if users wanted uh, RSpec instead of test unit, they could use the skip test unit flag that already exists in Rails. Um, but we have other gems that build on that, like we just mentioned Guard and Spork. Mm. They work with that. Um, I think we have email spec in there now. Mm. 
uh, shouldn't matter. There are a few things that like that are nice that we want to use and have the decisions made on every project. But before you make that decision, you have to make the test unit versus our spec decision. And we wanted to come down the way that we prefer. Yeah. Plus our spec is better. So, <laughs> uh, okay. Some more test stuff, uh, born, which I think you wrote, right? I did write born. So born is a extension to Mocha. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally submitted as a pull request and it adds test spies so the two things that Mocha does out of the box is you can stub something or you can mock something. And those both go before whatever you exercise. Mm-hmm. The difference the, being mocks set an expectation on the call. Exactly. And stubs just say, this is what's going to happen. Mocks say, this is what should happen. Mm. But that's sort of unnatural in um, most testing frameworks because it's usually an order of those phases where you say, set something up, do something, then check it. Whereas with a mock, you're saying, like, set something up, say something should happen, do something, check other things. Yeah. Um, so you set some of the expectations before and some after, which is a little awkward and especially confusing for beginners right. and makes reuse a little bit difficult. Uh, so born changes that by making it so that you can verify stubs after the exercise phase. Mm-hmm. So you can say like, if somebody happens to call this, this is what happens. Then you run something and then you at the end say, by the way, somebody should have called this and they should have given it these parameters. Mm-hmm. So it separates the like uh, stub from the verification mm-hmm. now there's something that i run into a lot and i have i have a hunch i know what you're going to say but um i find myself wanting to um i want to move the exercise portion of my test into like it's, it tends to be repeated across the test like i'm testing you know, uh, you know process a happens i call method a and i want to verify three things about method a and one of those things I want to test that like a, a stub got called somewhere or like a mock got called somewhere. Mm-hmm. But my actual exercise of method A, I want to pull into like a before block. So it's done every time because it's repeated between every test. Is that like an anti-pattern or something? And so I find myself saying, okay, well, I guess I have to move that exercise thing into every test because on one of them, I want to first mock something or stub something out and then check it later. Well, I guess there are two reasons you might be running into that. And one is if you're going down the one uh, expectation or one assertion per test or example, Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know, philosophy, which I think is just sort of weird and arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't do that. I try to have one uh, test per condition for a method. And so, for example, if it's the same method, but the setup isn't actually different, uh, even if I'm going to do multiple assertions on the result of that, I'll only have one example or test method. Mm. Um, so a common example is like testing a controller action. If you write unit tests for your controllers, you'll have like, you know, well, when I get the index action, it should murder this template and assign these things and whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and I'll just write one test for that and have all three assertions in there. And then you don't have to worry about extracting the setup because... You only do it's all once. just in the test. Hmm. But you get sort of a less fine-grained test, right? Like something fails and you don't know what else failed? Like maybe it's just the rendering has failed or something like that? Uh, sure, like you don't get to see all the assertions that failed. Right. I usually find that output when you have them split up to be obnoxious because usually it's mm. the same thing that caused all three. Mm. So like as an example, if you're testing like if I post to create it, it should create this thing and then redirect but for some reason you messed it up and validations are failing. Mm-hmm. So like it's not going to redirect. It's also not going to create the thing. And getting both of those failures doesn't help you deduce the problem, right? You just get more noise. Mm. So like if it didn't create it, it's never going to redirect. So why do I care if it redirect if it didn't create it? Mm. 
if if that makes any sense. Yeah. So I, I don't feel like it does make it harder to track down failures. Okay. If you have too many uh, expectations, it can make the test sort of like dense and hard to read, in which case maybe like you're testing the same set of things over and over again. So you might want to uh, extract a matcher or assertion or whatever from that. Or you might decide that like, hey, if I have to assert so many things about this method, maybe it's doing too much. Sure. And I should extract some stuff. Listen to those tests. Did you have another another possibility of my the situation I was running into? I think you had one was that I'm doing. Yeah, right. So if you're doing multiple tests for the same condition, that's one thing. And then the other one is like I have multiple conditions. So like if the assertions pass, if the assertions fail, and I need two different tests for that, right? But there might be some common parts of the setup. Like either way, it's going to find this user and then build a post for that user. And then either the post saves or doesn't save, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's pretty easy to extract methods for that stuff usually. Um, but again, I think if it's not, then it's worthwhile to listen to your tests and think like, if it's so hard to stub out the setup that I'm annoyed when I have to do it twice, Mm. then maybe this method is doing too much. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, ready for the next gem? Yes. Good. Go ahead. Uh, Capybara WebKit, another gem you wrote. That is true. I am the original author of that. Yeah. Can you talk about it? Sure. So we use, um, <laughs> we've settled on a combination of integration testing and unit testing for Rails applications. So it's been working really well for us. Mm-hmm. And from the higher level approach for Rails applications, it's just a, I don't know, a logical fit to test things from the web UI. And, you know, there are a few different ways of doing that, but by far the most prominent one is Capybara. And we've decided to make that decision for ourselves on all our projects. Mm-hmm. Um, now when you're using Capybara, it has a number of drivers you can use. Um, and the built-in one rack test works really well if you never use JavaScript, but you know, here we are (laughs) using JavaScript. Yes. Uh, so you have to pick a different driver and it does come with one out of the box, which is Selenium, but Selenium is, uh, you know, there are a number of issues with it. It's sort of slow. It depends a lot on what's installed on people's machines, like your version of Firefox, like two different people can be running the same test same gem file and everything and be like, Oh, but I upgraded Firefox and now I don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas with Capybara WebKit, it uses a, a compiled bundle driver. You can control the version of Capybara WebKit. So it's less likely you have that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and you can compile, uh, you can configure the version of like QT and everything independently of the browser you actually used when you're using your machine. So I think we actually didn't even say what this is. This is headless JavaScript testing, right? Yes, that's right. Sorry. So like I said, it comes with multiple drivers. Rack test works without JavaScript, but you need a different driver for JavaScript. Yeah. Selenium is the default. Capybara WebKit is an alternate JavaScript driver that is headless. Mm -hmm. So it's also faster than, right? Than driving a browser through Selenium. Most of the time. Yeah. Just weird. There's like an actual JSON endpoint that it hits or something to do Selenium. Isn't that how that works? Yeah. So Selenium has a, a REST server powered by JSON that will talk to your browser, which like from a geeky perspective is kind of awesome. Right. right? And it's like, wow, I can have a REST server for running my browser. But when you're making like 40,000 requests a day to that server, suddenly it's like, I just wish it wasn't there. Right. Totally. Uh, Factory Grow Rails is in there too. Yep, we use Factory Girl for making our test data. That's another place where we've overridden the the Rails default of fixtures. Yep. That's another original Jay Ferris creation. That's true. And, and now that's, uh, that's made by or managed by Josh, Josh Clayton. Yep, who's been on here maybe a couple times. Uh, Shoulda Matchers. Yep. Um, 
that has some common stuff that we've been using less and less as we've relied more on integration testing for certain things, mm-hmm. but it has some neat assertions for like uh, checking associations, checking validations. I think I use it the most these days for validations. Mm. Like it should validate presence of whatever. Right, exactly. And it'll go through some nice stuff that you might not have uh, thought of. Like sometimes the validations are impossible to run because you might have like a... Um, uh, before validate callback that like sets values and you won't realize that this validation actually cannot possibly fail right because you're validating presence of something that will always be set unconditionally mm. and so i don't know at the very least it helps you find dead code and like weird conditions and your validations that could be messed up mm-hmm. uh and then time cop oh man so that one um that's another one that's not really a choice that's almost just like a suggestion like you should really be using this because um Things like time and random stuff that you don't control in your tests mm-hmm. is really hard to debug, and it causes these weird failures that like sometimes show up. Like we once had a bug in a test where it failed on uh, it failed on the full moon. <laughs> like, I don't even remember how that exactly happened, and then we've had a number of them related to like leap years and things like that. I think I just saw a commit that fixed a bug in our workshops app in our learn app that was like make the test the commit message is like make the test run pass on Friday afternoons, right? Because like the week you know is now over or something, and there's all this weird interaction. And so time cop lets you basically just control time from the perspective of the test. So mm-hmm. you can say like, when this test runs, it's always Friday afternoon. And so you never have to worry about like somebody happens to run it at midnight. It rolls over to the next day. And now you get this weird failure. That's like, how is it a day off? Yeah. If you could get me that it's always Friday afternoon functionality in another form, I'd really appreciate <laughs> it. I'd be super into that. We wouldn't have to write reels apps anymore. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for playing with me. <laughs> Sweet, awkward silence. Um, cool. Um, so we actually, one of the things we touched on, um, you started mentioning that shoulda, or sorry, suspenders contains the decisions that we've made after some experimentation. Mm-hmm. But we've actually sort of put a little more formality around the process by which we do these experiments to actually determine what goes in there. That, that's true, yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so internally we've always had a general policy of like we always want to be improving. Every project should go better than the project before it and you know we want to use the latest stuff that's available. But we have to balance that with using stuff that works. Hmm. And so we don't want every project to be a playground like I've never used Redis before or nobody has used this gem before or like simple form seems nice. Because uh, if you end up like seven different things, like at the end of the project, if it doesn't go well or it does go well, it's like, I don't know what was responsible for that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, you spend so much time debugging new stuff that nobody knows about uh, and it just becomes uh, unmaintainable. So our right. usual rule of thumb has been like every project gets to have one weird thing and then it uses our normal stack. So we basically start with suspenders and then when we are confronted with a problem, we'll make one new choice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, it's not a hard rule. There's some flexibility there. And maybe we don't use anything new, but we try not to have more than one experiment going on in a project. Mm -hmm. And so that's just sort of been out there as a loose rule for a long time. But on a company scale, we didn't have any way of like tracking these experiments or figuring out like what was new that people did want to try or had tried or how it had worked. Mm -hmm. And so we um, started these monthly discussions where we say like, what are people trying out? Like, how are your experiments going? And try to push them forward. Uh, which is now involved into a Trello board. Mm-hmm. Um, for anybody who's not familiar with Trello, it basically gives you uh, swimming lanes where you get to have columns for different categories. So we have like 
pending uh, experiments discussing uh, exactly resolved. Yeah. and so the idea is when you come up with something you want to try out like oh hey i've never used simple form before you put it in the pending column say what it is whatever and then when we have an opportunity to try it out on one of the you know weird things for a project yeah move it into the researching column try it out for a while and the idea is to try and keep pushing things through so we resolve experiments instead of just having these like fuzzy ideas of like somebody i heard was trying simple form right maybe i should try it too or it should be in suspenders yeah i've recently subscribed to like the give me the daily update digest of from this board and it's it's great it's like there's like 30 people trying different interesting ruby experiments and like updating Mm -hmm. it's kind of an awesome thing of uh source of knowledge have we thought about publicizing this it's pretty new so yeah that'll be i'll think about that next (laughs) yeah give give it give it old the old thinker as they call it. <laughs> you're my second podcast. I'm afraid you're getting the, the recycled hosting situation. Um, I like the part where I say something awkward and you sit there in silence and refuse to rescue me. Uh, I'm sorry. It's my first podcast. Yeah, right, I'm not, I'm not really warmed up yet. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Um, uh, so this, this sort of ties into what you were just touching on, um, uh, as to whether we use, uh, beta or release candidates of rails mm-hmm. and why we might or might not. Okay. Uh, well <laughs> we don't right. generally. Um, and, I, <laughs> and now I'll leave you hanging. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. So, I mean, that just kind of goes back to the, we need to use stuff that works thing. Yeah. And like rails is a big piece of software. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and we depend on it for a lot. Like we need it to work and we do try out the, the betas and the release candidates with our gems to make sure they're working with the latest stuff that's about to come out and people will play with them and things like that. But we don't deploy beta or release candidate versions of rails to production. And we try to avoid beta versions of anything in production just because it's a declaration that nobody knows if it's work. Right. So yeah, Yeah. it would be tough to kind of like look, the client in the eye and be like, yeah, it broke because we used this beta thing that we knew was beta. Right. And we will sometimes, there have been times where a project starts and we know that rails is like imminently upgrading. Mm. And so we'll start it on the release candidate. And then we know by the time we actually get our first production deploy that we're going to upgrade. Yeah. So like a good example is we did that when we knew that the, um, the asset pipeline was coming out because we were having problems with the existing, you know, non-infrastructure. Uh, writing backbone apps without sprockets and all that kind of stuff. Right, and right. So we were like, well, we could put in Jamit and like manually configure this stuff and hunt down all these things again, and then switch to the asset pipeline when Rails uh, three point I think it was three point one. Right? So yeah, when that comes out in like two weeks, or like we're not going to actually go to production before then, so we'll just start with that. But our general rule is that we don't use beta versions, and certainly we would never have one in suspenders. So you were just mentioning backbone. Um, do we have so we've we've written some backbone apps in the past we were writing a bunch of them at one point about a year ago when we started writing our book um are we still as interested in in are we are we still pushing towards rich client side apps like that so i mean we definitely we still like backbone as a solution for client side apps mm-hmm. but i don't know if i would say that we are in general pushing towards richer client side apps mm-hmm. Um, so in particular, a lot of things that we work on are MVPs and, you know, when you're writing the first version of something, the, there's only really one question you're trying to answer and it's, is there any interest in this? Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to build something like 
intensely rich and expensive for version one, right? And I mean, like we've gone back and forth on the benefits and drawbacks on backbone versus like straight, straight up rails mm-hmm. a lot. And I don't think it's so much backbone or not backbone. It's like, do we do a lot of rich client stuff or do we not? Because if we do a lot of rich client stuff, we will use backbone. Yeah. Um, but on newer applications, it is slower to introduce all those. You know, like there, there are more things you have to worry about. There Absolutely. are more layers. There are more moving parts. There are browsers to worry about and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we try to keep the JavaScript stuff pretty low key for most new applications. And then, you know, we'll evolve to a couple jQuery things. And as soon as it becomes like, I'm tired of all these none of his functions, then we start introducing something like Backbone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, it, it, you probably don't need that sort of functionality to answer the basic questions that you're answering early on. No, almost certainly not. Yeah. It's like you're looking for your customers. You're looking for fit. Like, is this something that anybody wants and might pay for one day? And like, that's not that impacted by a handful of milliseconds on the client side. Right. And I, I think there are some there's some cases where you might consider it. Like there are some ideas that really lend themselves to a single page app. And if it's simple, it might actually be easier to do in backbone than without it. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you're heavily looking at mobile from the beginning, then it's easier to transition a mobile, uh, UI using backbone we've found. Mm -hmm. Uh, so in those cases you might decide to use backbone just because your earliest case is a mobile UI and you don't want to, I don't know, muck around with objective C yet. Mm. But, uh, for most, most applications we've worked with, you can do it faster without any rich client stuff, and you can sort of evolve from there to introduce a richer client for the parts that matter most. But like, most of your application is going to be the boring stuff you always have to do, like signing up for a new account, uh, all the static pages going through the basic motions and the CRUD UI. And that stuff all takes longer with a rich client, and nobody's going to be that excited about like, I signed up using Backbone! <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I think that actually wraps everything up. There's a good, thorough suspenders investigation. <laughs> yeah. Um, if somebody wanted to ask a follow-up question to you, what would a good way to, to do that be? Um, yeah. What I, protocols do you respond to? I respond to email. Okay. How, do you have any <laughs> addresses by which you are reachable on email? The one I check the most is joe at thoughtbot.com. How about your, what's your personal email address? <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. Uh, joe, thanks for stopping by and helping me smash some giant robots. Anytime, Ben. Appreciate it. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash podcast slash 37. Today's podcast was recorded by Chad Pytel and produced by Chad Pytel and edited by Edward Laval. Thanks for listening.